We come to this question this week. What do you give yourself to? Your time, your, your talent and abilities, your treasure tells the story. It's Paul's driving question for us as we begin now this fourth movement in a four-movement symphony, the book of Romans. What do you give yourself to? What do you give yourself to fully? Maybe it's your, your family, your job. Maybe it's your friends. Maybe it's the pursuit of some fun, a good experience. None of these things are bad in and of themselves. And if you have the same friends I do, overhearing conversations and social media, you may actually know that it's football season right now. I don't see Callie and Tom. I was just going to like call them right out, like publicly. They're not here. That's fine. They're not here. They're probably watching the game. Um, It's football season. And there's no hate on that, by the way. Jesus loves football. In fact, I want you to watch football. I want you to have your homies over when you watch football and have the best party with the best food and love the people you invite into your home. There's no hate at all. It's just incredible to watch the, the passion, the fervor, the evangelism of the football fans. People have their teams and they are sold out through thick and thin. One example of this right now is my beloved Broncos. You are, if you're a Broncos fan like me, you are suffering for the gospel right now. Believing what Paul has taught us in Romans 1 through 11, that yes, God is sovereign and there is indeed hope, although it is hard to see. When people love something, when they have their desires oriented toward that thing, when their affections are shaped by the ups and the downs of that thing, they worship. They give themselves fully to it. This is Paul's command and appeal to us in Romans 12, that we would offer ourselves fully to God. Not at the expense of football and golf and good dinners and hanging out with friends and hikes and all of those things, but as we're doing those things to the glory of God in worship. Therein lies the difference. God always wants to get us to the heart. So I want to remind us that Romans is not some sort of theological treatise. Yes, it's a symphony with four movements. It's beautiful. It's tightly packed. Paul is a logician. He is well acquainted with the philosophical schools of his day. He is providing rational arguments for the gospel, but it's so much more. It's a letter to you. It's a letter to people just like you. You can imagine those Roman churchgoers Showing up to church that morning, most likely having to gather in secret, and someone says, you won't believe it, we finally got the letter from Paul. And someone stands and reads Paul's letter to the church. It's personal. The gospel is personal, it gets to the heart. And so this question of what do you give yourself to gets to my heart. This week I found myself with a two-sided problem, maybe two sides of the same coin, really. The first is this, that I I do indeed walk by faith, as do we all. I, I make offerings. Unfortunately, mine are frequently fragmented. 
It's like having an Android phone that's two years old. Fragmentation of the operating system. I, I, I have a little bit of offering over here, a little bit here, a little bit of offering over here, a little bit of my love, a little bit of my affection spread about. Functional saviors, as it were, that's a challenge, but the challenge goes deeper than that because we know the right answer. At least most of y'all church people do. You know the right answer. Offer yourselves fully to God. Consecrate yourselves in full devotion. Be a living sacrifice. And yet we are real people with real wounds. And so the heart question doesn't just expose our fragmented idolatries, but it also gets to that deepest concern, which is, God, can I trust you? If I offer myself fully, can I trust you with with what I put there? My soul, my life, can can I be fully known and fully loved? And will you come through for me? An honest question that gets to our hearts, not only based on the injustice and evil in the world, but more acutely from our own experience. God, if we offer everything, can we trust you? So Paul turns us now in the book of Romans from issues more doctrinal, Romans 1 through 11, to issues more ethical. How should we live? What does it mean now to live in and through the grace of God? But Remember this, it's still doctrinal. There's no false dichotomy here. Like Romans 1 through 11 is doctrine, and all of a sudden, boom, Romans 12 through 16, it's, it's, it's all a, a collection of pithy sayings about you know, how to obey. Because the thing that holds Romans together, the thread within the symphony, and perhaps our most precious doctrine, is this idea that we are United to Christ. I love Martin Luther. Romans has has much to say about justification being put in the right by the grace of God in Christ through our faith, no works, because look at you people. What do you have to bring? Justification by faith is all over Romans. But the key thread is this idea that we are in Christ. We are united to Christ. And so all the benefits... Not only you're being justified, but sanctified, that is made holy, sustained, that is he will finish the good work, and ultimately brought to glory and bringing others with you, all of those benefits are because you are now adopted into the family of God. You are beloved children. You are in Christ. And that provides the foundation to the question, how shall we live? Remember Romans 1 through 3 guilt. Romans 4 through 8, grace. 8 through 11, really. Romans 12 through 16, gratitude. Guilt, grace, gratitude. And when I say guilt, don't, don't get triggered. I'm not talking about, you know, coming here and beat you up and thump you with the Bible. None of that. By guilt, we mean the simple acknowledgement that we're sinners and we need God's grace. I mean, that's, that's the starting point for being loved by God through Jesus. Okay, I can't do it on my own. I've tried. No amount of money. No no amount of education. In my case, charming good looks and rapier wit. I mean, (laughs) no amount of any of these things is sufficient 
to save. And no, that doesn't mean you're the worst person and all the people out there are as bad as they could be. By no means. It does mean when we stand before a holy God, we have nothing to bring that is sufficient to save us. Because ultimately, we love ourselves. We want to be our own gods. And so as all are sinners, Paul says, but check this out. Jew and Gentile, although all are sinners, are saved in the very same way. This was a revelation to the hearers, but he proves it. Remember Romans 4, we're in the family of Abraham. He goes back to the Old Testament, to the Torah, to the writings, to the prophets, to show them that it's always been this way. In Romans 9 through 11, Jew and Gentile have unique roles in the history of redemption, and yet those roles are reconciled in Christ. So this guilt, grace, and gratitude is the story of Romans. It's the story of the whole Bible. And this is the mission that, that Paul is on. Again, let's not, let's not abstract up the letter thinking that it has, you know, it's just some collection of beautiful theological concepts. Paul is on a real mission for real hearts. Twofold. One, that Jew and Gentile unthinkably, this is almost as weird as, you know, older folks and millennials, that Jew and Gentile could be reconciled, could really love each other, could really look at each other in their differences of language and culture and socioeconomics and privilege and power within the Roman structure and love each other deeply from the heart and die to themselves for the sake of the other. So reconciliation is the first piece of his mission. The second is that these people, this church, our church, would be so full with the love of God like a drink offering, so full with the love of God that they would overflow to the city and the world around them. So reconciliation on the one hand and recreation on the other. Fully offer yourselves, but not for yourselves, for God's glory, for your joy, but for others, for those in the church and especially for those in Santa Fe. That's why Paul's main point in this passage, I believe, is simply this. Okay, children of grace, children of Romans 1 through 11, children of the grace you have heard and received and believed, now offer yourselves fully. Be a healthy church, healthy living sacrifices in both your worship and your work in the world. What do you give yourself to? Paul says, nothing will satisfy your heart more than if you offer yourselves fully to God and to others. That's the main point. And that's how we're going to unpack this. So for all my engineers, offer yourselves fully to God and offer yourselves fully to others. First, fully to God. We are to offer our bodies. And these first few verses in Romans 12 provide the foundational thesis statement for the rest of movement four. That is Romans 12 to 16. Paul makes an appeal. It's a command. And Paul's appeal, although founded on the grace of God, blossoms in the authority of Christ himself. Because Paul says, 
I appeal to you, therefore, by the grace given me. Now, that's a nice way to say, I am an apostle of God. So this isn't a suggestion. And I'll be honest, I needed to hear this this week. I actually need to hear it every day like 17 times. It's not a suggestion that if you have been met with the grace of God, that if the mercies of God have broken into your soul, that you reconsider the idols of your heart and where you are offering your time and talent and treasure. It is a command. It is for our good. And yet it is a command. So offer yourselves fully to God. Pay attention to what Paul says here. First he says, we offer ourselves fully by the mercies of God. Notice the definite article there. The mercies. And we won't rehash it again, but repetition can be helpful for my fading memory. He invites us to look back. Once more, Romans 1 through 11. Those are the mercies of God. You want to stand in awe of God? He chose one man, Abraham. One family grows into one nation. One persecuted nation. They sin. They're in exile. He goes and gets his bride. He brings them back. 400 years of silence, and he sends his son. And now this good news goes to the whole world. The whole world. Even Santa Fe. The whole world. By these mercies of God, Paul says. Grace compels our offering. We don't serve the Lord in thankfulness. We don't obey because we have to. We obey because we want to. We trust the Lord in obedience in our doing because the doing of our obedience has already been done. It is finished in Christ. And this is really a key to understanding the Bible. The whole Bible. By the way, feel free to fact check me. All right, pull out your little supercomputer and Google it if you want. I'm on solid ground here. So often what we do as Christians is we, we pray the prayer, we get saved, and that's all by grace. And then the living and the doing and the, and the being, you know, in God's people, it, now it, it just, it's this creep. It just creeps in to subtly shift to like, oh, well, now it's kind of how are you, at your works. Your works and your righteousness and your merit and how are you doing? Paul would say no. The indicatives, that which is indicated about you in the gospel, that you are in Christ, by Christ, for Christ, through Christ, forever, those indicatives not only found but sustain and drive the imperatives. So the commands are real. Friends, let us not be hypocrites. Let us repent of our sin, my sin, man. I want to tell you all about it, so let's go to coffee. It's real. Romans 7. We still wrestle with the flesh, even as the Spirit is having victory. And it's no excuse, I'm sorry, but we don't get to play the victim. I'm an only child, so man, my, my tiny violin is like a Stradivarius. Do, 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 do. I mean, I know how to rock the victim card, but no. The Lord will not let us be hypocrites. He calls us to obedience. It is not a suggestion. Paul speaks and appeals with authority, but the indicatives always proceed, undergird, and bring to completion 
the imperatives. This is the gospel that Paul has fought so hard for in Romans 1 through 11. So we cannot make the mistake now of going, oh, Romans 1 through 11, it's all grace. Romans 12, what do we do? All right, Paul, give me my list. Give me my list for a better life, better marriage, better looking, better job. Give me my, what do I do? No, it's grace all the way down. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the the power of God. It's the righteousness of God. It is his covenant justice, his promise keeping justice to justify us. Not just in the past, but in your present and in the future. We can't lose the gospel as we move into application. And that's why I love the, the song that the chorale sang. They were here in the first service, so I walked over and thanked them. So I'll thank the ghost chorale. Thank you, Tony. I love their ministry. Who but the Lord? To offer yourself fully to God, guess what? It begins with God. It's carried on by God. And it ends with God. Who but the Lord? So we offer ourselves fully to God by the mercies as a living sacrifice. And that should sound weird to you. It sounded extremely weird to those who heard it in the first century. A living sacrifice? No, in the Old Testament, you put your sacrifice up on the altar. It had to be consumed in its entirety to appease the wrath of God and atone for our sins. But it's worse than that because the Roman culture knew sacrifices very well. And do you know why you make sacrifices in Roman culture? You do it because you never really know where you're standing with the gods. Right? Zeus is just like an, an untethered, you know, New York playboy billionaire. I won't name any names. Doing whatever he wants. Every now and again, he looks down and sees a cute girl and says, I think I'll take that one. Maybe he has a couple kids running around that are, you know, half God, half kid, whatever. And you just don't know quite how you stand with the gods of the Roman pantheon. And so it's not so much the promise of offering in the Old Testament for atonement. It's, it's the hope that if you can win over the God's favor, if you can get on their good side, then, I mean, maybe you won't get a lightning bolt. Paul says it's nothing like either of those. Because the final sacrifice has already been given in Christ. And we certainly don't live as a sacrifice to appease God. It's the opposite. Because Christ's sacrifice is final... And because God doesn't need to be placated, but is already happy with you. Can you possibly believe that? What could make you want to obey more than that? I just think about my kids. God is already pleased with you because there's nothing you could ever do that would even begin to compare to what he has done in his son. And because God is already happy with you, Paul can use this paradoxical temple language. Our lives are a sacrifice of dying to ourselves for the sake of others and the glory of God. But in that, we find ourselves. We are alive. This is the truth, and it will set us free. Total consecration becomes this happy paradox of total human fulfillment. God has plan and purpose for us. It's not just to come here and eat and drink of the word of God and then sit on the couch and do nothing. God wants us 
to be strong and fed and sent. And that's why Paul says to be a living sacrifice is our spiritual worship. Presenting our bodies, not just physical, but all of us, heart, mind, soul, and strength, holistically, is our spiritual worship. And many of you know that there are a variety of translations of these two words. Again, Paul's a genius. By using these two words, which can mean spiritual worship or reasonable service, Paul again is about reconciling Jew and Gentile. Because these Greek words can actually have the possibility, lexically, of both translations. So to be spiritual is to be reasonable. And to worship is to serve. Your spiritual worship, this is what you are made to do, to love God and to love your neighbor. It is reasonable because if these mercies are true, what could make more sense than this? And it's service. It's as if Paul is saying to us, Will you follow me as I follow Christ? Will you remember that because the final sacrifice is made, all we have to offer is our thanks? And I want to challenge us as a church in this. To practice the art of counting thanks. To do the work of thanksgiving. I I don't do this all the time. I'm not great at it. For some reason, I'm better in the shower. I don't know why. But when I will stop... When I will when I'll stop being, you know, a little bit, a little bit wave like the sea back and forth, a little bit emo up and down, when I'll just stop and start to recount the things I have to be thankful for. Within about three minutes, the weight of that list of thankfulness is heavy enough to crush any and all of my woes. This is our spiritual worship. To offer up our thanks to God and to do it in public. Reminds me of that great scene in Braveheart where he tells the riders on the horse in that one battle. He says, I want you to go around the other way. Pretend you're fleeing. And what does he say? And make sure the English see you do it. Right? And then they come back, the horses come back and they trounce the wicked English people. No, I'm just kidding. We love the English. To do this and to do it in public is our spiritual worship, and that means that we need new minds, which is why Paul in this thesis leads us into the twofold, do not be conformed, but transformed. The the word there in, in Greek is pattern or shape. So don't let the world and its agenda shape what you know, what you believe, what you think is true. Do not follow the world's pattern. And can I just say, this is really hard to do because we are bombarded by messages all day long about our insufficiency. You're insufficient looking, and so you need to buy more products. You're insufficiently having fun, so you need to go on some new adventures. You're just never enough until one of you invents the thing, and I know we got a few Lanel folk here, where I can like stand in the mirror and airbrush it all up in the morning and magically money appears. It's just never enough. And it never will be. So Paul says, you must have a transformed mind. That's what it means to offer yourself fully to God. The world cannot dictate our agenda. And the reason for that is because when the world dictates, it's always law in the end. 
If you pursue power, it's always law in the end. Because the second that you almost have that power, someone else could be more powerful than you. If you pursue pleasure, it's always law in the end. It's never enough. A great couple quotes from the French philosopher, Michel Foucault. Some of you know Foucault was on a journey, went from Paris, he came out to the West Coast, he went into the desert, he tried all the drugs there were to try, he did all the crazy stuff, he was going to find that one thing that would satisfy, deconstruct all the morality, deconstruct all the social norms, finally be free and arrive and satisfied, and it never happened, because it's law in the end, it's just not quite doing enough. And I want us to think about this. A second question. Not only what do you give yourself to, but what does your mind think about? What preoccupies your mind? And let's be honest, some of, some of us in this room really struggle with worry or anxiety. What about the future? I mean, there's so many things you can't control. Let's not think about it. I don't want to think about it right now. It's Sunday. Where, do our, where does our mind go? Where our mind goes, the heart has been leading. So our minds must be transformed. We are not only people of faith, but we are rational people who have put our rational faith in God's Christ so that we can, as he says, test the spirits. What is the will of God? So you might be asking, okay, devote myself fully to God. It's all by grace. I want to be a living sacrifice in public. I want my mind to be renewed by the Word of God. But how do I know what God's will is? And here I want to say two things, because this is one of the questions I get all the time from people. What is God's will? Should I buy these shoes? What is God's will? Should I move from Santa Fe? No, never leave. Never leave. What is God's will? And two things I want to say here. As an encouragement, number one, if we want to know God's will, we have to be seated and listening at the place where God speaks. And I just want to encourage us. Once again, pull that little supercomputer out of your back pocket, download the Bible.is app or the ESV app or whatever. We have never had more access to being able to fall asleep listening to someone read the entire Bible to us in a soothing voice. But brothers and sisters, we, we need to be people of the word of God or else we will be conformed to the world. Because there are so many things trying to get your attention. It's called compassion fatigue. It used to be you'd, you'd live in a village and, you know, there'd be one piece of bad news every week or every two weeks or something really bad every month. Now you have access to the worst news in the world all the time. And it's exhausting. And if we're not careful, we're going to think, man, the world really is awful. People really can't get along on, on anything. Nobody likes each other. Look at that person, how they didn't use their turn signal. You know, I mean, all of that. We have to sit in the place where God speaks, which means we need to find creative ways. I, I can already hear my own excuses. I'm busy. All right, well, download it and listen to it on your walk. I don't have the time. We make time. So to discern God's will, to test the spirits, we have to sit at the place where God speaks. And then this, quoting St. Augustine, probably, 
he had this great little phrase. He said, what is God's will, they ask. And I reply, love the Lord your God with all that you are and love your neighbor. Now go and do as you please. Now go and do as you please. The beauty of these truths are not only do we get to sit under where God speaks, but we get to be held where God walks. And as we are loving God as he loves us, here's good news. You can't screw it up. Ultimately, you cannot screw it up. And that is why offering yourselves fully to God leads by necessity to offering yourself fully to others because the body must move. We have to exercise. We cannot just eat and consume and be all about me. We have to move. This is the sacrifice that God desires from you. The sacrifice God desires from you is your full trust and devotion to him, good days and bad, and to love each other in such a way that, that our friends in Santa Fe go, that's weird. I mean, really, why would anyone want to come to church? And don't tell me because we got free coffee out there. Let me come to church and sing a bunch of songs I don't know. Hang out with people I don't know. Hear some weird dude give a weird TED Talk thing I don't know. Come up and eat this tiny little wafer. I want to do like a huge loaf of bread. Let me eat this tiny little Nerf pellet wafer. And I, why would anyone want to come to church? Except that God's people, fully devoted to God, and God fully devoted to us, that's grace, can love each other in such a way that our friends look at that and go, that's not normal. What's normal is for me to get mine and take care of myself because you, you be careful if you're too vulnerable. You'll get hurt. Be careful if you trust people too much. You will get hurt. I've been hurt. I've been wounded, they might say. I, mean, I can't go there. You're telling me there's people of different ages, different stages, different backgrounds, Jews and Gentiles and even Santa Feans. And they come together, and they die to themselves, and they give to one another? Can you imagine the light that we will be, and are, and must be in this city when we do this? Go read Acts chapter 2 and 4. All the believers consider themselves one in heart and mind. None of them considered any of their possessions to be their own, but gave to one another as there was need. Those who had fields took them and sold them and laid at the apostles' feet so that together they could plant churches and build the kingdom of God. The body must move. To offer ourselves fully means fully to others. So we have sober judgment about our, ourselves, Paul says. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. I do struggle with that. I'm sure you do as well. But the conviction for me here is in those places where, oh, I wish the world was a better place. I wish there was more justice and, and more, more care. And I wish people would be helped, served and fed and loved. And to that, the question comes to me and you. Let me see your checkbook. Let me see your calendar. It's a hard one to hear for me. Because where we put our time and our talent and our treasure, we reveal our full devotion. The good news here 
is it's not about you. The hard news here is it's not about you. And Paul is throughout speaking in the plural. We read it like 21st century Americans. How else can we read it? Okay, offer up my body as a living sacrifice. What do I need to do? What are the rules I need to follow? Those who heard this in the first century would have understood implicitly the corporate nature of the command. Jesus doesn't just want individuals doing well. He wants the whole church to be healthy. And that means the individuals in the church need to know each other and look out for each other in a way that is meaningful. Can you imagine what will happen when we do this in our city? Thinking this morning about Carlos Montoya down at Blaze or Eric at the Grove, Father John up the street, Doug at the Lutheran Church, Reed probably baptizing somebody right now at First Baptist. And I love the fact that Christ Church, which is a church plant, is a part of this city, which is full of church plants. And we are not many churches. Those who preach the gospel, we are one body. We are one body. That's how the world's going to look at us and go, oh man, wow, that is kind of different. Why do you guys get along? Why do you love each other? Not because we like each other, by the way. We don't like each other. Your music is weird. Your old movies are weird. I don't understand. And kids' cartoons these days and Meow Wolf, that is so weird. I'm stuck somewhere between like 34 and 41. And that's all normal and good to me and everything else is weird. It's not because we like each other. It's because in Christ we are loved and therefore we love each other. So we have to exercise our gifts. This wide variety of gifts. Now, some of you are, are here, and again, it's like, oh, great. He said no guilt, but here it comes. We know the church rule, the 80-20 rule, right? 20% of the people do 80% of the work. And now I'm going to get the hard thing about you got to do something. Not true. Maybe you're new. Maybe you're healing. Maybe you just need to be here to rest. Maybe you serve one minute a week. Maybe you serve three hours a week. The Lord knows your heart. The point is that doing nothing is not an option. And why? Because doing nothing would reflect something that is a lie about God and about His Christ. So I want us to think as we go forward in Romans chapter 12 to the end, what gifts has God given you? And if you're a football lover who can throw a good party and buy some of those Market Street wings, then maybe your gift is to bust out the crock pot and invite your neighbors over. Don't over-spiritualize it. <laughs> what do you already like to do? What are you already good at doing? Where do you have a burden on your soul to go and move toward those places of brokenness and injustice and bring in the new creation? We are the church. We don't come to church. This building is not the church. I was talking to a lady this morning from Marin County up in the Bay Area, and she goes, oh, we've been a church plant for 14 years, and we still don't have a building. And I said, beware of the building. Beware. First of all, you're going to stand before Jesus someday, and he's going to say, how did y'all use that expensive building? Number one. And number two, beware of the building, because it could kind of make us a little bit lazy. I know it can for me. Set up and tear down, that's oh, pretty comfortable here. Nothing wrong with this place and this space as long as, as long as we are exercising our gifts for one another. We don't come to church, we are the church. 
We are a body. So if one of us is hurting, we're all hurting. If one of us is joyful, we're all joyful. Consider your own body. You stub your toe. It's not like the rest of your body's like, well, I don't care about that. The rest of your body reacts with some interesting words often. (laughs) Offer yourselves fully. Because Christ has been fully offered to you. So what do you give yourself to? And when the answer to that question is, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. God is there to help us and to hold us. By God's mercies, let us give ourselves fully to Jesus and to one another. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this humbling and encouraging passage. Be with us now, Lord, I pray, as we sing the second verse of I Surrender All. Lord, be with us as we sing these words, remembering that you have given yourself to us, and that is our hope. Compelled by grace, we want to. And where we struggle, you are with us. But Lord, help us to obey. We want to be holy too. We want to be holy and bright and on fire. We want our friends who say, oh, the world is so disunified, it's so fragmented, to be in awe at the unity that we share because of you. We want to light up this city with the unity of the love of Christ. To lift Christ high. For you have promised, Lord, that you will draw many unto yourself. Do that now as we sing. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.